This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, we return to those heady days of the late 20th, early 21st centuries when a rise of social democracy throughout Latin America that was being called the Pink Tide rolled through the region, promising to challenge centuries of settler colonialism and imperialism that had been devastating to the people and the environment of the region. The idea was by getting elected, they could implement their plans through government and create a more environmentally responsible welfare state that could help out everybody, not only the wealthiest who had long benefited from a system of inequality. In the case of Paraguay, Paraguay, I'm going to go with Paraguay today, they could address how the countryside was being completely transformed by the monocrop of soybeans that was making Brazilian immigrants rich off Paraguayan line, land while forcibly displacing the people who lived on that land for centuries and ended their tradition of planting very diversified crops. The railing call became soya's death as the pesticides the agricultural industry was using are meant to kill all plants deemed suboptimal for whatever single crop they want to raise, in this case, soy. In fact, this kind of land grab was happening all, all around the world as capitalism remade the planet and its plants in its own commodified image. The Social Democrats' plan was a worthy attempt, but as history would show, the pink tide would recede not because it was a failed idea of social democracy, but because the Social Democrats didn't realize that a government whose power comes from a climate change-causing monocrop can't give up on that crop if it wants to stay in power. In a few, we will consider the very complicated case of Paraguay and its attempt at fighting back against the monocrop agriculture that has changed the face of our planet when we speak with political anthropologist Craig Hetherington, author of The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. Craig is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Concordia University. He's the editor of Infrastructure, Environment, and Life in the Anthropocene and author of Guerrilla Auditors, The Politics of Transparency in Neoliberal Paraguay. Craig specializes in environment, infrastructure, and the bureaucratic state. He's director of the Concordia Ethnography Lab and graduate program director in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex? Uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of Albert Bell highlights. I think I need to bring that sort of energy to my life. I'd be a lot more successful. I think... <laughs> I think I should try to model myself out of uh, the, slur- the surly, not slurly, the surly uh, Cleveland Indian slugger. <laughs> also Chicago White Sox, and there's a great story about how he paid a bat boy to break into a locking room, locker room to steal a bat that he had done through a drop through a drop with. ceiling. Yes, it's great. It's a great story. That's a really fantastic. I, just, story. I appreciate any athlete who uh, has a bad attitude and hates the media. <laughs> yeah, Steve Carlton, you'd love then. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This week's question from hell is: What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can help out completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. 
So thanks for all your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners been answering the question from hell since yesterday's show? What are you screaming in public at a stranger while they record you on their phone? Garrett says, build pipe bombs, get revenge. <laughs> Aaron D says, it puts the lotion in the basket. Oh, fuck. Chris H says, the Kama Sutra. <laughs> Not sure if it's the title or just the, the contents. Ed F says, burn it all. I'll watch. <laughs> Eric T says, hungry, hungry hippos. And Shane M says, I, li- I say my name is John Johnson. I live in Wisconsin. Oh, I work at the... I, do you understand this? Yeah, keep going. I work at the lumber mill there. The people I meet as I walk down the street say, what is your name? I say, my name is John Johnson. I live in Wisconsin. And they film it. And if they film it long enough and I yell long enough as they film it, it becomes like a Stuart Lee stand-up routine. <laughs> Who's okay. Stuart Lee? I don't know Stuart Lee, but I'm glad that that rhyme did not continue. Thanks, Shane. Is that it? Oh, no, we got a ton more. You want right. to do a couple more? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, Fabio L says, why, 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 why? <laughs> Take it easy, man. And then posted a horrifying uh, YouTube loop of Joe Biden asking why. <laughs> Wesley G says, stay on the scene like a sex machine. Oof. Michael LP says, patriotic freedom noises. <laughs> what are you yelling at a stranger while they record you on their phone? Nora P says, Black Lives Matter. Nikki says, you've fallen and you won't get up. And Aaron B says, agitate, agitate agitate. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. We will be announcing this week's winner as we do each week at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers into us now. During tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff wants us to plan for what happens after the future. That's right, post-future. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or use Facebook Messenger to send us your thoughts, your comments, your criticism, both constructive and destructive, your guest and topic suggestions. And if you do, we will likely read your writing on the air. If you have not noticed, there have been editorial changes at a couple of old liberal stalwarts, the kind of magazines your parents and grandparents would read, because they would really stick it to Nixon. However, both publications went all neoliberal in the 80s and continued to take the Clintonian track to leftist ruin into the 90s and aughts. Well, for whatever reason, suddenly the New Republic and the Atlantic have seen a glimmer of light and hope that they may go back to a less centrist position. Because of that, listeners are suddenly sending us suggestions for guests whose writing has appeared in either one of those publications. Listeners like Mika, who writes, thought you might like this article. The author gets into the idea you bring up about protesters not knowing just exactly where their protest is going. And as a historian, I thought maybe she has written much about that. Mika then sends a link to the Atlantic article, How Revolutions Happen. Revolutionary imagery is ubiquitous right now, but real structural change involves more than the toppling of statues and what happens next is a matter of chance. It's by Rebecca L. Spang, professor of history at Indiana University. The article offers the meaning of privilege, literally private law. One set of laws for the nobility, one for everyone else, as defined in 18th century revolutionary France, and argues we might think of the revolution's radicalization 
as a Mobius trajectory, moving in what seemed to be a single direction. It nonetheless arrived on the other side of a metaphorical strip. In other words, you never know where revolutions will end up. Mika adds, so you get the etymology of privilege, which I did not know, and now makes perfect sense, and a a bonus Mobius strip all in one place. You're welcome. Okay, fine, I admit it. I had to look up what a Mobius strip is. For those who do not know, think of a single piece of fabric that gets twisted so its two ends touch, making a continuous twisted loop, which is about as good of an analogy of a revolution as you can get in the revolution's progress. Despite it being from the Atlantic, I have forwarded it to Alex, and we will check on Professor Spang's availability. And if any of you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic, please send it in. And if we have your suggested guest or topic on air, we will personally thank you for helping out your friends here on This Is Hell. Ivar also has a guest suggestion. He writes, I wanted to throw out Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology as an interview suggestion. Talk about the ghost in the machine. I think her book opens up some very interesting questions about race and technology and how racism gets embedded deep into systems. Hopefully you'll get to ask them. It could be a great interview. I hope you're doing well. Nothing else breaks in your home. COVID keeps away and no more digestive issues. Best wishes, Ivar. The book that Ivar suggests came out last July, July 2019, and at the publisher's website it says, From Everyday Apps to Complex Algorithms, Ruha Benjamin cuts through tech industry hype to understand how emerging technologies can reinforce white supremacy and deepen social inequity. Benjamin argues that Automation, far from being a sinister story of racist programmers scheming on the dark web, has the potential to hide, speed up, and deepen discrimination while appearing neutral and even benevolent when compared to the racism of a previous era. Presenting the concept of the new Jim Code, she shows how a range of discriminatory designs encode inequity by explicitly amplifying racial hierarchies, by ignoring but thereby replicating social divisions, or by aiming to fix racial bias but ultimately doing quite the opposite. Moreover, she makes a compelling case for race itself as a kind of technology designed to stratify and sanctify social injustice in the architecture of everyday life. Which sounds amazing, so thanks, Ivar, and the book sounds right up our alley. Even though it's a year old, I forwarded it also onto Alex, and uh, we will check on Ruha's availability. As for breaking news of things constantly breaking in my home during quarantine, yes, we are still in phase one of the virus in our house. The only thing breaking down now is the roof repair, which looks like it's being done by the cast of Breaking Bad. And besides a stabbing pain here and there, just to keep me honest, my digestive issues are improving. Thank you very much, Ivar. Valerie also sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com related to when I was missing shows in late July because of a flare-up of diverticulitis. In fact, this week, when I was writing up the summary of everything we've learned during the first six months of 2020 for the monologues on uh, Monday and Tuesday, and you can hear those now at thisishell.com, I realized how many shows I missed due to my stupid stomach and crazy colon. So again, my apologies for missing shows. I'm trying to do a better job at watching my diet for foods that may cause a relapse so I don't miss any more shows. Valerie writes, Hey there, hope you and your girly are well. I recommended this while you were out weeks ago with your stomach ailment, but I don't know if you saw it because it was the main account that I sent it to. I don't know what that means. Have you tried 
papaya enzyme for your stomach. It helps with indigestion, but it also has anti-inflammatory properties. I get some small rolls of like 10 or so or for just over a buck at the overpriced bougie store by my house. Might be worth the try since it's not very expensive. I don't know if it would help with the full-on episode, but maybe could help stop it, go from there. I'm no doctor, so no promises. Just thought you'd want to check it out. Valerie then adds teas that are good for gut issues are peppermint, uh, ginger, chamomile. Green tea is a good alternative with your guts are on fire and you can't drink coffee. Prevention is always the best medicine. Garlic and cayenne in tincture form are actually very good anti-inflammatories and have soothing properties on the guts, contrary to the belief that they inflame gut issues. Obviously, trust your body with that one. Probiotics are important if you can't stomach dairy or kombucha. There's a juice called Good Belly with probiotics you can add to a smoothie smoothie with banana, good for brain and guts, and I like to use blueberries, which are good for depression. To be totally honest, I don't love the taste of the juice and usually mix it half to two parts almond milk, but it helps a lot to have a smoothie every morning for digestion. I struggle with different gut issues. Anyway, you said you'd try anything, so here's one more option. Feel free to ignore it. I don't think that's one more option. I think there's plenty more options. There's a lot to digest there, but yeah, papaya enzyme, green tea, garlic and cayenne in tincture form, something called good belly. Valerie adds, thanks for all your great interviews and keeping it real. Really hoping you can get Mariam Kaba back on the show or someone from Critical Resistance who have also done a lot of thinking and experimenting with alternatives to police and transformative justice. Take care. Be well. F the police. Valerie. Yes, Valerie, F the police. And we have been in contact with Miriam to get her back on the show. In the meantime, you can hear our interview with Miriam from 2017 on, on abolishing not only the police but prisons by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Kaba, K-A-B-A. Finally, Kevin wrote to tell us something I did not know. Kevin writes, I just found your podcast on Spotify during quarantine, and it has helped me keep my sanity, sanity throughout the pandemic. I had no idea we were on Spotify, but I rarely listen to the show more than the one time I hear it live when I'm doing it. So to be honest, other than going to thisishell.com, I have no idea of how to listen to the show. That kind of stuff is way above my pay grade. Kevin continues, I think there's a phrase live from the nightmare of want that you say occasionally. And I was wondering if there's an allusion to a book or just a general sentiment. Kevin, uh, there is a story behind that phrase. There's a documentary about Marlon Brando called Marlon on Marlon that I stumbled across one afternoon a few years ago while researching and writing for the show. It's a collection of cassette tape recordings of Brando intercut with B-rolls, stock footage, family movies featuring Brando and his family. At one point, uh, he goes to Tahiti and uh, lives amongst the indigenous, and he seems for the first time in his life like he has discovered genuine happiness, especially at the fact that the people had no idea who he was or what it meant to be Marlon Brando. At one point, the tape recording crackles, and you can hear Brando saying something like, Here I am, free from the nightmare of want. And now you know, and you should check out. It's actually it's either Marlon on Marlon or Brando on Brando. I think it's Brando on Brando. I can't remember now. I'm not a person who likes anything to do with celebrities, but this documentary is kind of a celebrity, anti-celebrity story. So check it out, whatever it's called. Marlon on Marlon, Brando on Brando. You should check it out. Kevin closes by writing, thanks for being a voice of reason in a land of endless insanity. Sincerely, Kevin. Really, Kevin? Is that sincere? Because if we are a voice of reason, then I'm really concerned. 
about the state of reason today. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. You can DM us via Twitter. You can message us via Facebook. This is hell coming up on the show what happens when you are not a government ruled by people but by resources that are devastating to your people and your land we'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they are recording you on their phone leave your response at our facebook page or send it to us via email or tweet it to us I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing as Alex Jerry, Noam Chomsky, called This Is Hell, Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. At the turn of the century, Paraguay was one of many Latin American nations experiencing a pink tide of social democracy meant to undo the legacy of settler colonialism, to upturn the inequality po- imposed on the people, to help out those most marginalized by imperialism, and to repair the damage done to the environment caused by the commodification of agriculture. A strong state enforcing just laws they believe could do just that. However, those uh, efforts failed, and in analyzing that failure, we can see the problems with monocrops globally here to explain political anthropologist Craig Hetherington is author of The Government of Beans Regulating in the Age of Monocrops. Welcome to This Is Hell, Craig. Hi, thank you. Craig is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Concordia University. He is the editor of Infrastructure, Environment, and Life in the Anthropocene and author of Gorilla Auditors, The Politics of Transparency in Neoliberal Paraguay. You start by mentioning a June 15, 2012 confrontation between Paraguayan riot police and representatives of local campesinos who you describe have been fighting for the right to settle there for generations. That fight had recently intensified because land was becoming more scarce because forests were almost gone and because the massive ranch that claimed to own the land was beginning to plant soybeans, a crop that in Paraguay had come to represent the annihilation of a certain rural way of life. Why is that life being annihilated? That is, why does it need to be annihilated? How is that way of life in competition with planting soybeans? How is it detrimental to soybean planting? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for the question. Um, that really gets right to the to the heart of this this project. I had been um, at at the point when all that happened. I'd been living in Paraguay for uh, for a couple of years and working for a long time with these peasant organizations who had been trying, as you said, for you know at least half a century to get access to land to be able to plant at a at a small scale. And they're they're kind of problems with that way of, of thinking about agriculture that we could get into later, but but it really is what had organized a certain kind of rural uh, leftist hope for a long time uh, in the country. Um, at the point when uh, soybeans kind of made their appearance, um, and the appearance was slow, but, but in the late 90s and early 2000s, they kind of exploded onto the onto the landscape there. And, um, and soybean agriculture is an incredibly profitable um, form of agriculture as long as one plants it at large scales with as little labor as possible. So, um, so it's completely antithetical to this kind of mode of small farming that had been, that had organized leftist politics for a long time uh, in the country. And as it, as it kind of rolled out over the countryside, uh, it became clear that in a place that 
sort of had uh, relatively weak structures that had that had um, a very disorganized uh, political resistance um, that was very flat and hot uh, and where you could import a lot of pesticides fairly cheaply uh, without a lot of oversight um, that uh, that soybeans could move very quickly and could move people out of the way um, as they needed to so that was the that was kind of the process that that set off my questioning about how to think about uh, soybeans but then also to think about the response to them that comes from uh, uh, the rise, as you said, of a pink tide government a few years later. So was there a vast increase in global demand for for soy since the 1970s? What explains the vast expansion of growing soybeans? Was it just that there was global demand? Absolutely, there was global demand. Um, I mean, the the primary driver of, of soybean demand f- for the last hundred years has been the meat industry. So um, after World War II, there's this kind of reorganization first in the United States and then elsewhere in the way that uh, that meat is being produced. And as meat is being uh, shoved into smaller and smaller spaces in these feedlots, um, you need to replace all that grass that they used to be eating um, and other things, all that pig slop and all chicken feed with whatever uh, whatever massive scale feed you can you can get. And soybeans are perfect for this because they have a lot of protein in them, so they allow you to fatten up animals really quickly. Um, and so that kind of discovery in the 1950s is what sets off this really large demand for soybeans. And then through a whole bunch of just geopolitical accidents um, and non-accidents, you end up with South America being a focal point for uh, for this production. So it starts in Brazil and then moves into Argentina and, and Paraguay. Uh, uh, a number of development agencies kind of realize that this is an opportunity crop for these countries. It really grows well there. There's this growing demand internationally, and so it starts to it starts to to grow from there. But then at, that's so that's the 70s that that realignment happens, um, and then in the 90s you have a bunch of technological realignments that just make the production of soybeans that much cheaper and therefore fuel the various things that you can start doing with soybeans. So it's no longer just meat, it's also all the oil production and all these uh, all these industrial derivatives that come from crushing soybeans. All of that becomes kind of you know, supersized by, uh, by this technological change that revolves around the genetic modification of crops. So as soon as you genetically modify your soybeans, you uh, reduce your pesticide costs, um, you reduce your labor costs, rather, you increase your pesticide costs, you replace the labor with pesticides, and you can therefore do this on much larger scales and much more uniform ways. And, and soy kind of goes through this second massive boom in the late 1990s globally, but particularly focused in this area as well. And this is all, as you point out, the legacy of the post-World War II Green Revolution, the Green Revolution that was very dependent upon uh, chemicals and pesticides in their uh, production for more food so they could potentially feed the world. Were there critics at the onset of the Green Revolution about the potential problems with chemicals and pesticides, or were they just completely unaware and they just went into this as fast as they could? Yeah, I mean, of course, there have always been critics all over the place. So uh, so in the book, I do follow some of the, some of the early critics in Paraguay um, who, uh, who were often, you know, doctors very, uh, concerned about the use of DDT and, and chemicals like that that get rolled out in the 1950s as these sort of miracle, uh, miracle 
agricultural inputs, but also they're used for all kinds of other stuff too. DDT was used very widely in South America for the control of lice um, and uh, and dengue mosquitoes, and and those cause all kinds of health problems. So so there was this kind of there was always a movement that questioned this. There had also been a movement, you know, from the late 19th century onwards, uh, we can associate with um, certain kinds of uh, romanticism and anti-industrial uh, politics that was always that that could see the way that agriculture was being industrialized and sort of uh, and resisted it in different sorts of ways. So, you know, the organic movement kind of comes out of out of these uh, these sorts of pastoral movements of the 30s and 40s um, that were very uh, that, that questioned this. But I think there is this thing that happens after World War Two. So on the one hand, you have um, this big World War Two had created a big technological boom, uh, a huge uh, a huge growth in chemical factories around the world, which had initially been created in order to uh, supply munitions, um, that then become reinvested in agriculture. And so you have this, you have this, this uh, uh, possibility now of using all this technology in agriculture. And people start to work on it really hard, and, and I think it's 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 fair to say that most of the folks who were working on it uh, were also involved in this kind of post World War II uh, welfareist moment of thinking the best thing one could do with the technology at hand was to try to create uh, wealth or well-being for the greatest number of people. And so a lot of a lot of the energy that goes into this is very well-meaning uh, kind of international development aid, uh, energy, um, and you you see people. Like uh, like uh, Borlaug, the famous uh, the the famous wheat engineer who gets a a Nobel Peace Prize for his work on creating these refined forms of wheat. Now all of that, uh, and and I wouldn't want to say that it was all necessarily bad, right? We do create a situation in which um, in which food is much more widely available in certain parts of the world where um, where it might have been less so and where certain people are able to join into global markets who had been previously shut out of them. So there is a way in which some of those welfare projects worked. And you can see that in Paraguay. You can see in Paraguay the, 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 the plant of choice was cotton. And uh, cotton was one of those plants where uh, if you could uh, produce it um, if you had enough inputs and you had enough kind of infrastructure for uh, for processing it and and exporting it, you could actually have hundreds of thousands of people producing it. Um, people who before had virtually no cash income could now kind of move into this cash economy uh, by producing small plots of cotton, and that that fuels this really big change in the 60s and 70s in the way um, in the way small farmers and the rural poor were able to access or at least dream of accessing a new uh, a, a new kind of life but what i try to trace in this book is that one of the ironies of that or the ironies of the green revolution are that it then creates all these other effects right and and one of them obviously is soy and the and the, the boom in soy and and in other places you could think of other crops that just become these monocrop monoliths that destroy the landscape on the other hand uh, they also the sort of legacies, the the submerged legacies of violence that went into the Green Revolution that get forgotten when we when we think about how wonderful all that food production was or all those crop production in general was. Um, that that legacy of violence has 
um, has echoes and other effects that kind of catch up with it later on. Among them, the sort of Anthropocene scale environmental uh, destruction, um, but then also also the sorts of uh, genocidal effects of settler colonialism that was always part of creating more crops and that continues today. And I want to make sure that people, I, I, just, I don't want to stress this too much, but I just want to make sure people understand how much soy has changed the world. Because you write of soybeans and their uses. It was the world's most common vegetable oil, and its byproducts were used to, in processed food for everything from preservatives to adhesives. Outside of the food chain, it was turned into glue, grease, putty, varnish, fuel, plastic, linoleum cement, clothing, foam stabilizer, explosives. Its biggest use, however, was feeding animals, as you're writing, uh, saying, destined for slaughter. Can we blame, then, soy production for increased meat production and CAFOs, concentrated animal feedlot operations, and the concentration of the entire industry driven by soy? Has soy caused a dramatic change in the global agriculture and food system and plant life Worldwide, because I just want to stress this importance of soy. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and thanks for that, and thanks also for the wording of the question. Can we blame soy? Because that was that was one of the the big things that brought me into this. I was around a lot of activists who were trying to blame soy for things. Um, and and I'm I'm not sure I ever came to a, a, a yes no response to that question, but uh, but absolutely it enables all of those things that you described. So it enables a concentration of the meat industry. It enables um, this this uh, way that we can when we consume food as humans, particularly in North America, but the world over now as as that kind of diet gets generalized, um, that we can actually be even though we're consuming a small number of calories, where those calories are all the more destructive because there's so many layers of production behind them in order to produce these uh, these small pieces of meat that we uh, that we then eat on our plate. So so part of the way to understand soy, I think, is is as this global enabler of a certain kind of diet that then, I mean, obviously uh, enables capitalist concentration uh, throughout the food chain as well, um, along with other chains. Uh, but but definitely, it's it's one of the conditions of possibility for the kind of CAFOs, as you say, um, that we that are now so prevalent in our food chain. And you point out that as soy expanded, it robbed campesinos of their ability to harvest and live from their own preferred crops, undermined an old project to build a functioning welfare state, and made it impossible to manage or to imagine a government that uh, responded to their interests. How does campesinos' ability to harvest their preferred crops benefit those who are not campesinos? What, what impact does campesinos harvesting their preferred crops have on those who are not campesinos, have on Paraguay as a whole? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really well-worded question as well. I think, I think that's where we get into um, some, uh, some ambiguity. And, and I think, you know, a lot of my work has been with activists who have been very, uh, very focused on this project of creating what in what in Paraguay is just called rural welfare. It has been called for the last 60 years, this idea that people ought to have a right to a piece of land on which they can grow corn and cassava and have their chickens um, and then participate through uh, cotton or other cash crops in a in a sort of modest way in the in the cash economy. There's this kind of vision of uh, the the ideal campesino life as being that and that's operated for a long time. Um, 
and it did, as I said, it was transformative. It was a transformative way of living for, uh, for an awful lot of people. And an awful lot of my friends are sort of two generations removed from that, um, from that transformation. It did also, uh, so, so one of the effects that you can, uh, you can think of it having beyond the campesino economy is that it did massively increase Paraguay's G- GDP. So all that cotton, um, and and corn and tobacco and a couple of other things that was being produced on these lots for export uh, was one of the big drivers of this this economic uh, boom that happened sort of ironically in Paraguay in the 70s as everyone else was going through a recession. Uh, Paraguay has this huge boom uh, in production. There's a couple of other things feeding into it, but a big part of it is this smallholder agriculture destined for export um, that that creates a kind of a kind of development model, a welfareist development model that uh, that increases GPD while at the same time um, while at the same time uh, creating lots of employment for people. So there's kind of a redistributive function that happens there. Um, so all of that, in in a way, you can understand as as being really good. On the other hand, I I want to stress, and I stress throughout the book that it has these these costs that are often or that were at the time left out of the story. So one of them is just forest, right? Uh, there's there's this uh, huge destruction of forest that comes with relocating all of these poor people on their own plots of land in order to uh, to plant these crops. Um, and with forest, all of the all the various things that come with forests, all the biodiversity, um, all of the all of the what we would later come to think of as climate effects of forests and so on. Uh, that's one of the costs. But then sort of the one thing that did make it into um, people's consciousness, especially in the 70s, was that there were still people living in those forests, living off the forest. There were groups of hunter-gatherers who had already been marginalized by earlier waves of settler colonialism, but who had a who had some space in which to carry out their own versions of a good life in the forest, um, who were, who were hunted down and killed during this period in order to get them out of the way for these, for these kinds of projects. Now, uh, it would be, it, it's a very complex uh, question of who was doing the hunting and who was doing the killing and why. And and there there's more than just smallholder agriculture at fault here, but it was certainly part of that expansive complex. And so when we think about soybeans as displacing a way of life now, we also have to think of that way of life as being a historically contingent one that was built on the displacement of other forms of life before it. Um, and one way to think about this story and one way to think about what soybeans are doing is that it's ultimately kind of concentrating these historical waves of displacement and killing in a cheaper and cheaper, you know, meat product for our, uh, for our supermarkets. So then our, our I, I don't want to take this too far because I don't want to make this an individual problem and erase any kind of systemic or institutional problem, but are we complicit then in the environmental, cultural, and global destruction that is wrought by monocrops because we all benefited and continue to benefit? Is, is this some grand bargain that we made uh, to destroy the envir- environment so we can get the benefits from it? Or were we not part of those negotiations? <laughs> um, yeah, I also... <clears throat> I appreciate the caution, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go too far down that uh, down that sort of moral rabbit hole. But I do think one of the things that I want to underline in the book is that 
yes, everyone is at some level complicit. There is this kind of complicity, and and part of what I wanna what I wanna get at is not that you know not that individual life choices or individual ways of getting into things have this this radical impact, but yes, the way that we organize our notion of a good life and and of well-being and certainly our consumption patterns all create some form of harm and and it's worth being uh, it's worth being aware of which ones are causing which kinds of harm in in order to be able to think uh, more effectively ethically and politically about the kinds of worlds we want to create and the and the expense uh, that uh, that that is that that rings out of other possible worlds I guess and you write that a century of expanding monocrops of the destruction of ecosystems in the service of a specific model of human life, like many other stories of the Anthropocene, it is about the difficulty of using government to mitigate the problems that government itself created during a quickly fading era when human well-being seemed to be achievable through the promises of limitless growth. Now, we've had guests on lately who have said we cannot look to the police to fix policing. You cannot look to the criminal justice system to fix criminal justice. You cannot look to capitalism to fix capitalism. Should we not look to government to fix problems by governments? And if not, who can offer solutions to whatever challenge governments have created? Is the only fix to a government's actions a new government? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so. So the central story in this in this book is about, I think, people who who sort of believe that. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm willing to go along with that belief to a certain extent. Right. I think I think Electoral politics is important, and I think uh, I think organizing uh, within state structures because they're so pervasive um, is an important uh, thing to do. At the same time, I want to underline, yeah, how uh, how intrinsically compromised those kinds of projects are when the state structures that we're talking about are the very state structures that were built for and with these forms of destruction before us. So if the if the the entire logic of your governing system in relation to pesticides, for example, is how is built on the question of how to get the most out of your pesticides while mitigating um, the harms. You're going to have a lot of trouble using that system in order to uh, to uh, actually rethink what your monocrop system is. Um, and so, so like I said, this, the story at the at the center of this book is about a group of people who. Um, quite uh, in, in a quite unusual political turn of events actually made their way into these bureaucracies that were in charge of regulating um, the uh, the environmental laws but also all of the all the things related to the agriculture chain uh, in Paraguay and tried really hard to to use these tools in order to shift things back and forth and I and I think it ultimately is an abject failure and for a bunch of reasons uh, but but one of them I think is that ultimately they were they were struggling against tools and they they recognized this throughout they were struggling against tools that were made for precisely the opposite purpose than what they were trying to uh, put them to and you write that soy was a detriment to social welfare and campesinos felt they needed the state to protect them from it soy was an environmental predator and it needed to be regulated by the state to prevent it from further destroying the environment soy was the result of government corruption and once a clean government was in place that actually applied environmental laws soy's excesses would be reduced this was their logic and soy was a, a product of brazilian imperialism since the crop was planted predominantly by brazilian migrants living on the border in the border region the paraguayan state was absent in 
in these areas, activists often said, and by reasserting national sovereignty, Paraguayans would uh, regain control over soy and its destructiveness. Why did the left believe it was simply an absence of government? What does that reveal to you about the thinking from the left point of view at that time? Did they have far too much faith in their governance? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that formulation, as as I put it, um, I is is a is a necessary narrative simplification. I don't want to give the impression that there that there weren't like serious critiques of uh, state power uh, operating in all of these circles from from the the, the campesino organizing uh, committees in the countryside through to these uh, the the NGO sector that supplied a lot of the the kind of top bureaucrats um, in the in the government that came in in 2008 um, a lot of a lot of this sort of analysis of the irony of what's um, of what was going on was supplied to me directly by people who were participating in attempting to use uh, to use the state in this way. So so I don't want to give a sense of total naivete, but I do I do want to um, show that there there were a number of conjunctions uh, uh, conjunctures that happened there that uh, that made it possible to imagine that taking state power would be would would cause a radical shift from the past. Um, one of them was simply that uh, in Paraguay, the same government had been in power at that point for 61 years, most of that um, as part of a, a, a notoriously brutal dictatorship uh, during most of the Cold War. Um, and so so it had been so difficult to figure out a way to get out from under the yoke of that dictatorship. And then it's kind of echoes in this party that kept getting elected even after the dictatorship was thrown out that the idea of, of changing that did seem like a totally, a totally radical thing. And, you know, for those of us, even, even the sort of slightly distanced Paraguay watchers, uh, when, uh, when the Colorado government fell in 2008 and this group of NGOs and lefty social movements, uh, came in behind this, this, uh, this left-wing bishop that we all knew fairly well. Um, it, it was a moment of incredible possibility and hope. I mean, and I don't want to under underestimate just uh, just what the power of a moment like that can be. Um, but then you have to sort of get into the workings of the machine and try to figure out how it works. And it turns out to be far more intransigent than, um, than you can even imagine, even if you sort of know that the president and the party, the ruling party, isn't the only thing at work here. Um, it's once you get into those offices and once you get into the, you know, the commas placements and the regulations and how difficult it is to move those commas, uh, things like that, that you realize that actually this machine is, um, is, a very, very hard ship to move. Um, and then on the other hand, and, and this is maybe one of the, one of the bitter things coming out of this, one of the main reasons for the failure or one way to understand the way that this uh, government failed is that they were thrown out in a kind of parliamentary coup in 2012. Um, precisely, uh, some would say, because they were coming a little bit too close to being able to touch the things that mattered within the state. And so in a country like Paraguay, it's not that difficult to just turn it around and throw the people out if they get too close to the things that actually matter. Um, and, and that almost leaves open a little bit of a room for hope that the state apparatus is still the is still the best instrument to uh, uh, to come back and, and and do something with this. So 
I, I, I don't want uh, the story that I tell to be uh, completely um, uh, to, to be sort of about pulling off the veil about a naivete about the state. I think there's a lot of things that happen in there. And I think that those kinds of activism are, are important. Um, but I do want to I do want to underline just how difficult it is and how much one feels when caught up in that machinery that one's actually um, uh, doing more to propagate a system that's already in place than using that system to uh, to change the the underlying conditions that brought you into that form of activism to begin with. You mentioned that uh, parliamentary coup. Uh, we started off by talking about how there had been this confrontation confrontation in 2012 between riot police and representatives of local campesinos, and a firefight ensues. What is later called the massacre of a town that I'm going to butcher horribly, Curaguati? Curaguati. There you go. Uh, Where six uh, police officers and 11 campesinos were dead with dozens more wounded or in jail. And as you describe, it becomes a national crisis. And by the end of the week, the president had been removed from office. Again, this is the president who was promoting the social welfare benefits for campesinos uh, and uh, trying to rein in the soy market. Uh, He was removed from office in what his uh, supporters called, as you were saying, a parliamentary coup. But you point out the problem became the president that was supposedly supporting the campesinos is replaced by a new president who, as you write, immediately began to dismantle the tepid regulations that his predecessor had enacted around the use of pesticides and genetic materials that were central to the soy boom as Lugo's replacement made the rounds, uh, declaring his friendship with soy farmers. He also mobilized the national police to protect crops from landless farmers. How popular was that crackdown on campesinos on the landless farmers? How popular was this parliamentary coup? Um... That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think in in Paraguay, uh, the kind of the the question of popularity always goes through through parties, um, and so the one of the things that made it very difficult for uh, for Lugo's government to sustain itself um, is that after sixty one years of a single party being in power, uh, the the proportion of the Paraguayan population that is affiliated to that party that that believes it owes its well-being and its uh, its its jobs um, and everything else about its livelihood to that party um, is is very great and so so there was always this there was always this very major resistance um, from people who believe they would be better served by the party that they belonged to um, and and there there's this kind of uh, partisanship is is naked in that way, right? It's really like we want our team to be in because we want our uncle to get the job in the office, right? That's the that's kind of the way that it operates. So, uh, so it was always really difficult to uh, to counter that, and the forces that were kind of amassed against the government that just popped into gear the moment this crisis happened, uh, in order to remove it from power. Um, were, were, were very great. And the, the efficiency with which they undid the government of beans, as I called it, um, is, uh, was, was really very impressive. If you ask people, you know, did they think any of that was good? Most of them will say, no, it was terrible. The whole thing is terrible. Um, you know, uh, killing these campesinos was, was obviously terrible. The way that it unraveled was terrible, but also the aftermath, the sort of the, the, the government that came in, uh, felt itself empowered to plunder at a level and at a speed that hadn't been seen even under the Colorados for quite some time, right? So, so there was this way in which that was that was uh, really um, it was it was really traumatic for a lot of people at a lot of different levels. 
That said, uh, once the Colorados reestablished themselves after a couple of years, uh, once they really opened things up for uh, the soy economy to keep rolling, and once a new economic boom started happening as a result of that soy and, and, and meat as well, it was sort of a burgeoning uh, meat industry that was almost as important and tied in obvious ways. Um, then uh, a certain kind of complacency set in. And, and one of the things that's uh, that's kind of weird in the aftermath of the eight years since all of this happened is is seeing the way that the movement against soy monocrops has really been uh, really been dismantled. And it, it would be hard to imagine people kind of rising up in the same way now as they as they they did before. And when I say complacency, I think I think I mean two things by that. On the one hand, there is this kind of growing middle class that's made possible by economic growth that is clearly attributable to uh, to agricultural growth. On the other hand, there there's a feeling uh, among a lot of the 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 erstwhile resistance that, you know, we, we gave it our best shot and it was horrible. Um, and it, it burnt people out for many, many years afterwards. And it was very difficult to sort of imagine rearticulating that afterwards. What I was thinking about when I was reading your book is how much government's power may potentially, uh, be held within fossil fuels, be held within what is causing climate change. So if you challenge the government, if you challenge fossil fuels, you might be challenging the power of government. Is the is challenging, is trying to fight against climate change, is that challenging the power of government everywhere? And is that what maybe the leftists didn't recognize in Paraguay? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think the soy state uh, is very much like how we imagine a petro state. Um, but I think I think the the kind of caricatured notion of the petro state is something that happens in a few places. You know, Canada might be one of them, and a couple of other uh, uh, countries that are really are, are really obviously beholden to oil. Um, I think maybe misses the the. The larger point you're making, which is that um, at some level, all of our government structures are based on this growth economy that is going to be uh, very invested in these kinds of commodities that produce large amounts of energy cheaply. And so oil and soy are, are very similar in that kind of way. Um, and, and it's not just kind of touching... Uh, it's therefore not just touching the, the the interests at play. I mean, there's a lot of that in, in the book, right? There, there are clear interests. You can point to where they are. You can point to how they exert their power um, in, in both lobbying and in the kind of uh, backroom use of violence against, uh, against protesters. You can see all that happening, but there's something kind of more than that there's this there's this logic of state power that has been built up throughout the 20th century on a model of economic growth that um, is is much harder to think your way out of than simply um, getting uh, getting the state so I think I think one of the things that I, I would like to think more about going forward is when we when we talk about projects like the Green New Deal which is a really nice uh, sort of a radical set of, of ways to think through um, uh, how to reorganize uh, the political economy um, in places like the U.S. or Canada. Um, 
at the same time, it's still built on this mid-century model of, you know, creating equality through some sort of growth that, uh, that I think is, the, is the, the, the bankrupt nugget at the middle of the whole thing. And unless we find a way to um, uh, think through that otherwise, it's going to be really difficult to, uh, to have useful progressive and environmental movements um, using state power. And you point out that Paraguay's uh, rural activists were hardly alone in thinking that the best way to mitigate the harm caused by soybeans was to appeal to the national government. It's a common premise of the global environmental movement that activities that produced widespread harm need to be governed in the public interest by a strong regulatory state. This premise is based on the idea that the state is the only apparatus able to effectively know and intervene on behalf of the common good in a world beset by complexity and uncertainty. And that all makes sense. That's how the system is supposed to work, but that's not apparently what Paraguay has or what many other nations have when it comes to governance around the world. And you point out that many anthropologists have pointed to the uh, magical qualities of state thinking, the way it creates a notion of unity and coherence around the threat of violence, while in practice that coherence is always vanishing or becoming fractious, multiple, and self-contradictory. Did Paraguay prove to its people the fiction of a nation? (laughs) I, I, I wish, um, I think, I think I would say for a lot of people, yes, absolutely. Um, I think there was a kind of, um, you know, in, in Paraguay, there's, there's a, there's a, a nationalist element about the whole thing that complicates the story even further. You, you alluded to it earlier that a lot of the soybeans, um, were being planted by Brazilian migrants and they could be kind of read as this this Brazilian imperial invasion into Paraguay. Um, and I think there's a th- there was a certain truth to that, but part of what uh, that enabled was a very um, a very convenient nationalist anti-Brazilian rhetoric uh, around all of this kind of thing that that then bolstered the notion of the nation state as the way forward, right? So so it becomes a sovereignty question. As long as we can establish sovereignty in this sort of place, then then we this exclusive we um, that uh, that's that's described by uh, nationality, then we will be able to govern things according to our needs. And of course. As soon as you start thinking that way, you uh, you forget that actually most of the problems are not coming from the Brazilians at all. They're coming from a whole apparatus that uh, you yourself are, are are involved in. So I think I think on the one hand, the question of does it diffuse this kind of magical thinking in the nation? Um, I think I think in part yes. I think there was a there was a slight retrenchment from a kind of leftist nationalism that I don't think was helping. Um, all that much at that time. Did it, uh, did it help people stop thinking about the state as magical? I mean, probably as well. Uh, but I, I would say there's one of the, one of the kind of lessons for me about this whole episode was the way in which a lot of people who, as I said, had been struggling against the state, um, and carrying placards saying, you know, the, the, the state is the enemy for a long time. Um, Suddenly, when it became available to them as an instrument, uh, its magical qualities started to shine a lot brighter, right? And so, so they, you can you can be against the state until the state becomes yours. At which point, the state sort of 
suddenly seems to not be a structure anymore that is implacable, but just an instrument that you can use for your own ends. Um, and I think that's always a danger. And that's always sort of inherent in the way that um, a lot of our uh, mobilization happens. So, so as these people faded away from the state structures and went back to their smaller scale um, projects, uh, whether it was in their own gardens or in their sort of community groups or, you know, building uh, an agroecology school or these, these different things that people had been working on before um, as they marched against the state and then kind of dropped out of, uh, they, easily, they easily fit back into, into that project. And I hope, I hope there's some kind of inoculation against thinking that um, just grabbing state power uh, would uh, would help them going forward, but but who knows? It's it's clearly uh, it's clearly a danger that's always there. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, we hear concerns over lack of biodiversity caused by global warming. To what extent are monocrops and the industry eliminating what in nature is suboptimal to them having any impact on the biodiversity we want to protect? when fighting against climate change. I mean, we always hear about biodiversity as being threatened by climate change. Isn't biodiversity also being threatened by monocrops and agriculture and capitalism? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's all part of the same package. So the, the monocrops are part of climate change. They, uh, they reduce biodiversity by definition. That's entirely what they're built to do. Um, and, uh, and in so doing, they reduce the ability of certain, uh, certain kinds of ecological systems to mitigate problems of climate change. So, one of the one of the great ironies of the soy industry um, that uh, that I think illuminates some of this is and, and illuminates some of the superficiality of our climate change thinking is that when people started planting soybeans at this this massive scale in Paraguay this was in uh, even as early as the 80s um, they they started to run into uh, erosion problems um, and uh, and the erosion problems initially were just thought of as agricultural problems. So if your if your fields are washing away in the rain, then you can't plant your soy efficiently. And so that becomes a problem. And they found a solution to that, which was to stop um, taking the plants out of the ground. You could harvest the, the beans uh, right off the plant. You could dry out the plant and let it stay there in the ground. You get no more erosion. And then if you have a, a good machine for planting between the old stocks, you can, um, you can, you can do that. It's called no-till agriculture. And it becomes actually a revolution in controlling erosion. And later it becomes really important in trying to uh, mitigate the amount of carbon that's being released by the, from the soil in, um, in agriculture. So if you don't use a till, you don't release this carbon. Um, at, at a certain point, people start talking about this as so productive for the environment that they actually offer carbon credits for, uh, for farmers who are using no-till agriculture. And Paraguay tries somewhat unsuccessfully, but, but the fact that they tried to, to create a whole industry of carbon credits for soy farmers because they weren't using tillage. Um, the irony of that, of course, is that these fields that are not being tilled are on spaces that were once dense forest that was all burned down in order to put the soy there in the first place. So thinking about the ways you can mitigate the problems associated with, uh, with climate change at these small scales kind of misses the whole point that the entire issue of having these huge monocrops is the main thing that's driving the deforestation of the Amazon. It's the main thing that's, uh, that's bringing up uh, local heat in, in Paraguay. It's the main reason why um, 
large fauna in Paraguay have been all but in- eliminated. There's basically no standing forest left um, in the country. All of that is producing climate change at the same time as it, it is part of this uh, uh, part of this this whole question. And it and yeah. So it's impossible to kind of, there's no chicken and egg way of thinking your way out of it. The point is that climate change and lack of biodiversity and these kind of violent displacements of people are all part of a process that come from thinking we can get these commodities as cheaply as we want. One last question for you. We've been speaking with political anthropologist Craig Hetherington, author of The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. We end each and every one of our interviews with one final question, and that question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I think you're just going to hate this question because it's just, it was just something that crossed my mind. And I apologize for this kind of hypothetical or uh, can financialization be seen as a kind of monocrop or the military industrial complex? What is a monocrop economy that's unrelated to agriculture? Or is that something that is only unique to agriculture? I love that question. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm not sure I can uh, I can answer it as fluently as it deserves to be uh, to be answered. But I do think, you know, there is something for me about monocrops that goes way beyond uh, agriculture. It certainly goes beyond soybeans. It's kind of um, it it stands in as a sort of lovely metaphor for global capitalism. And, uh, you know, way, way back in the day, I think this early 90s, Vandana Shiva talked about the the monocultures of the mind um, as a way of thinking about what um, what global capitalism was doing back when we used to call it globalization. Right. I think. Um, and and I, I would be absolutely comfortable with uh, with exploring that metaphor further towards things like financialization, things like commodify, commodification in general. Um, I think all are part of a structure that kind of forces this this tendency in thinking. So um, so there's no reason why soybeans themselves need to be like this. We've been eating soybeans for millennia as humans, um, but they they there's a certain kind of mixture of uh, soybeans plus global capitalism that turns soybeans into these these uh, monsters where you have hundreds of thousands of hectares of absolutely identical plants um, all being planted in this way. So um, so yeah yeah let's let's let our imaginations fly on that particular uh, question. I think it's a really good one actually. Yeah, and uh, imagination is something that, as you point out in your book, so often the market and capitalism it really uh, stunts our imagination when it comes to our relationship with nature, and so we need to have more of that imagination when we're considering <laughs> these kind of things. Craig, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Craig Hetherington is the author of Government of Beans: Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. This really is a fantastic book. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And thanks to Alex for suggesting that book. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast. Live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? person with our favorite answer gets a This Is Hell face mask. All you have to do is be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell. Or if you can't wait to see if you won and you want a damn mask, go to thisishell.com and click on support. That's thisishell.com. Click on support. You can leave your answer on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. 
Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, yeah, but first, I'd like to say something about free speech. Yes? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Ray C says, I don't want to wear pants. <laughs> Graham M. M says, I wasn't touching myself. I was vigorously scratching just one place with a joyous smile on my face. Disturbing that it's all in all caps. Too. Uh, <laughs> Why is Greg, he yelling that? Greg B says, Joe's a demented, genocidal, lying freak, too. Bradley R says, it's my economic impact payment, and I need it now. Tyler R says, I got a lot of, I got hairy, these Joe Biden things are killing me. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs, that turn, that, that, that turn, uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun, and the kids used to come down and reach into the pool and rub my leg down. I'm going to get in trouble for reading this. (laughs) So it was straight, and then come and watch the hair come, come right back up again. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap, and I love kids jumping on my lap. Wow. Terrifying Joe Biden quote. Oh, my Uh, God. Marshall W. says, why are you putting doggy do in the recycling bin? (laughs) Gorilla G. says, that better not be Scipia. Milton T. says, great painting, by the way. I I posted a Francis Bacon painting. Mm -hmm. A couple more. Lawrence L. says, little feet suck since Lowell George died. (laughs) There, I said it. (laughs) Mark A.S. says, you need schooling, baby. I'm not fooling. Jacob J says an intimidating but nonsensical series of screams, which will hopefully trigger a flight response from the voyeur, so I can continue looting in relative peace. Just a couple more. What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Marco G says you got to understand. I was out of your paper. It was just a rabbit. What? Andre J says six feet, you idiot, and get that mask over your nose too. Kim G says surveillance state. And finally, Michael <laughs> SF says free Britney. Tune into tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com to listen to the podcast podcast posted shortly and or uh, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if you have won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host podcast host live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to our guest Craig Hetherington again author of. The government of beans regulating life in the age of monocrops. With the most, with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.